Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. If you are about exclusion, it is, there is an expiration date on that. History has proven it. It doesn't matter what community we're talking about, but there's always an expiration date on exclusion. Inclusion has no expiration date. So even though you have to get over the hump of people adapting to a new group being included, that awkwardness will go away. And I think when it comes to advertising, unfortunately for advertisers now on the forefront of showing the visual of the gay community, the burden is on you because it goes back to saying that none of us have ever seen that before. Welcome listeners to the Ms. Interpreted podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey. Long time no see. I know, exactly. Today is a long-awaited episode of Misinterpreted, right, Mary? It is, it is. I think we met with today's guest to discuss her visiting the podcast back early last October down in Atlanta when it was still about 95 degrees outside with typical hot Atlanta weather, so quite a few months ago. And she gave us some pointers. And, and she did. It, it was very helpful. Very helpful. A much-anticipated interview for us today's guest joining us, and we're honored to have her in studio here in Knoxville, the mothership, Yes, given her history and affinity with the University of Tennessee. Our topic today is reaching the big L, and you get three guesses what that stands for, <laughs> and how marketers keep getting it wrong. And the L we're referencing is focused on the lesbian segment of the LGBTQ market. We're proud to welcome two-decade Atlanta famous radio personality and LGBTQ trailblazer, Melissa Carter, to Misinterpreted. And Mary Beth, since Melissa is one of your closest friends over many, many years and college buddy, I'll have you do the full introductory honors. Gladly. Uh, this interview today is pretty personal for me, Kelly because Melissa Carter and I have a friendship that goes actually back to high school, believe it or not, back in our hometown of Columbia, Tennessee, which for our listeners is about 30 miles south of Nashville. It's a place where we both have a lot of affection for that town, for the many friendships that we had there and continue to have there. I'll begin by saying that today, Melissa is best known as the first openly gay morning radio host in Atlanta and one of the first out members of the LGBT community in radio nationwide. She started her career in radio while still in high school, Kelly, back in Columbia and with a small AM station in our hometown. I will remember I was 16 years old and the first time I ever stepped into a real working radio studio was visiting Melissa on the job against company policy, I'm sure, <laughs> when she'd be working the graveyard shift on air at the station. But I also well remember being shocked even then at how Melissa, I mean, as a then, she was 17, 18 years old, I guess, she could own a microphone speak extemporaneously live on the air in such a fearless way. And I, I was kind of intimidated had I not been such close friends with her. But of course, little did I know as a teenager, it was really only the tip of the iceberg for her as to the talent I was witnessing right in front of me. So fast forward 30 years and Melissa has spent the bulk of her radio career with a 100,000 watt station in Atlanta where she hosted a top rated drive time show. That show had a top 40 format. So her career brought her in studio to interview some of the world's top musical and other artistic talent. She now reaches a national audience through her weekly podcast, She Persisted, which is available for download on iTunes. Check it out. 
She also co-hosted a nationally syndicated radio show that was the only one of its kind at the time, geared toward the gay community. A past Grand Marshal of the Atlanta Gay Pride Parade, Melissa has authored a weekly column entitled That's What She Said for the Georgia Voice, a newspaper geared toward the LGBT community for the metro Atlanta area. And her columns have also, of course, appeared prominently for the Huffington Post. In 2002, Melissa underwent a life-saving kidney transplant and later established the Melissa Carter Transplant Fund at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. Sales of her song, Unplugged, and yes, she does sing, are available on iTunes and on Amazon.com. They benefit the fund there. And she appeared a few years ago in the Rose Bowl Parade in Pasadena, California, on the Donate Life float as a national organ donor advocate. So she uh, has certainly applied her voice in a lot of different ways to help a lot of different communities. She is a School of Journalism and Electronic Media graduate of the College of Communication and Information at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She and her former partner have a young son, affectionately known on her podcast as Mr. Carter, and other members of her family figure prominently and how she shares her life journey on her podcast, including her wonderful mom, whom I know, known to Melissa's listeners as Millie Pete. So I'm excited to welcome Melissa to Misinterpreted. Oh, hi, guys. You're... Mary Beth. Now, Mary Beth was in middle school, I guess junior high school, Yeah, uh, that we called it back then when I met her. So it, high, it goes yeah. back all the way to junior high yeah. school. So Yeah. Melissa, I will have to say, she was a f- just a few years ahead of me in school. And so she was, fr- <laughs> I have an older brother and she was friends with my brother's friends. Mm-hmm. And I, I, through her friendship with my brother is how I first met her. So, yeah. but yeah, we were in high school together for one year. And then after that, I stayed in very close touch with her as she went to college and stuff. So. Well, that's so cool. I'm I'm a fangirl now, Melissa, Yay. after yeah. <laughs> listening to She Persisted and hearing the Mr. Carter stories. And yeah. we both have our one son, so we have yeah. that in common. And Well, the funny thing is, and let me explain Mr. Carter for a second. The term came because of the fact I'm a lesbian, and I made the joke on air that I'll never live with any other man. So that's why he's <laughs> Mr. Carter. So when somebody calls the house asking for Mr. Carter or, you know, mail comes from Mr. Carter, he's the one that's going to get yeah. it. Or what All they right. say is your husband home before yes. we come over to look at the air conditioning unit that yeah. needs Yes. That, 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 that one always gets me. <laughs> exactly. Will your yeah. husband be home? I'm like, yes. oh, sure. He's here. He's going to write the invisible check. So now I'm going to say, well, if you want to talk to Mr. Carter, here he is. And my son currently is five years old. So they can <laughs> yeah. deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting really fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to kick things off here by asking you, Melissa, to start mm-hmm. our conversation going back away before the start of your very prominent radio career in Atlanta and mm-hmm. talk about the roots of your self-discovery. i I grew up in the theater, and I was a music major, so I really grew up in an LGBT community before we even knew what it was. Right. I know my best friend who lived on my street growing up was one of my best friends, and we didn't have a word for it, but mm-hmm. we just knew that he liked to do our hair and our makeup. He taught me how to work, walk in high heels, and we yeah. would practice in my garage. <laughs> and so, you know, later he, he you know, he was gay, but we didn't even have a word for it back right. then to describe it like our kids do now. So in your formative years growing up and you think about your sexual identity truth, and I'm sure one of the hardest parts of your journey was growing up in, in that decade where yeah. people didn't have words for it. 1980s, small Southern Bible Belt town, mm-hmm. during the dawning age of the AIDS crisis and yeah. all the implications. So what was it like? What was your journey? How did you discover your sexuality? How did you deal with that? You know, what, what was the story? Well, like Mary Beth said, Columbia, Tennessee 
has grown since uh, not not much I don't know but it has it, it's grown a little bit since when we were there it's small yeah. town definitely a small town and you know that when you watch the weather report on television so Nashville is the the source of where our broadcasting came from in Columbia we weren't on the weather map back when we were growing up now I think Columbia makes the weather map <laughs> but we didn't make the weather map back then that's how small it was but I I didn't know or understand what was going on until I, I hit puberty. So I think for a lot of kids who feel different, I felt different before 14. I mean, I guess I hit puberty about 12, but it's 14 when I knew for sure that I was a lesbian. And the first thought I had was, oh God, please no. Because at that time, there was there was nothing what you see now. There was nothing. I mean, it was just, I felt like I was the only lesbian in the world and I definitely thought I was the only lesbian in Columbia. And I felt that that was an instant isolation. And I think I put myself through the instant isolation. I think I imposed that upon myself because I became, um, I was, I, I, I focused solely on my political career in school. So my personality was always one to be the class clown. I always wanted to be social with everybody. I made a point, especially in high school, after I realized who I was, to make sure that I communicated and connected with every facet of our group. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the cafeteria back then, it was still very richer kids are over here, white kids are over here, black kids are over here. You know, it was very segregated in the lunchroom. And I made a point to make sure that I sat at every table at some point during the week. I remember that so much. Yeah, to connect with people. And I think that... I've said in hindsight, being gay is one of the best things that's ever happened to me because of the empathy. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it didn't feel that way. I felt, I think I was doing that as a way to process what I was going through, but I was still dating guys in high school. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of being a woman, especially then, and I mean, I hope not now, but you could get away with saying, I, I want to wait till I'm married. So uh-huh. when it became intimate situations came about, I, so I dated a guy my senior year who I cared about. He's a friend I grew up with, and everybody knew us as a couple, but I was hardly intimate with him at all, and I used that as the reason, and he respected it. And then at the same time, I felt guilty because I'm lying to this guy who truly cares about me and who was in love with me, and I knew that. But I, in hindsight, I, that's one of the biggest guilts I have is I felt like I wasted his time. Well, I want to back up and say, because I made a statement that my friend, who was one of my best friends Mm -hmm. growing up on my street, that, you know, he liked to do our hair and makeup and taught us how to walk in high heels. And I just want to say that I understand that that is not every gay man's experience. (laughs) Just because you're a gay man does not mean you want to do hair and makeup and walk in high heels. I get that. Right. But... One of my observations is that most of my gay friends, whether it was from my hometown or when I lived in New York, they all escaped to mm-hmm. bigger cities. They wanted, they, mm-hmm. a lot of them were from yeah. very small towns, yes. but none of them stayed. They, they I, had to yeah. get out before yes. they could come out. Yes, and I left the University of Tennessee. I graduated on a Saturday. I was in Atlanta within a week. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got out as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. I initially went to MTSU because I was on scholarship to MTSU. And I remember walking across campus one day my freshman year, and it was everybody from my high school pretty much was there. I mean, it, it, because Murfreesboro is very near Columbia. And MTSU is a fantastic school. And my brother and sister graduated from there. And like I said, I got a full ride to MTSU. 
And I, to, to the disappointment of my parents, except my mother, Millie Pete, who is just one of my closest, dearest people, I said that I wanted to leave MTSU because it was too much like high school. But in my mind, it was because I can't come out at MTSU yeah. with all my high school friends are here. Right. I can't be free. And so she supported the fact that I wanted to go to UT. And my father begrudgingly supported it because he's like, oh, well, we're going <laughs> to... The bill just got you know larger. Did they know at that time? They did not know at that time. And so I went to Knoxville. I felt free because it was a bigger campus. I met new people. I volunteered at different organizations. And I uh, was part of the theater group. You know, I helped with theater. And, and so I got to... And I met my first lesbian couple while I was at UT. And I... Because even though I had a girlfriend in high school, too who she doesn't even claim that we were together. So that's the other thing. The person that I, you know, mm-hmm. technically lost my virginity to doesn't claim to have ever slept with me. And it's one of the sacrifices wow. you make where, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about this in branding and understanding the lesbian and gay communities, is that it's, it's not, it, the ride is not the same as a straight person's ride. You know, you know people can, can uh, romanticize their first experience and talk about, oh, you always remember the first, you always remember the first. Well, my story's not the same because, like I said, my first doesn't even, I mean, we're Facebook friends, <laughs> but she, but she, yeah, yeah, yeah but wow, she's not going to yeah. claim that I was her first. And she'll, she'll acknowledge the guy that was her first. So, right. so at that point, I was very confused. I think I was emotionally stunted, professionally not stunted. Like Mary Beth said, I, I put all my energies into what I wanted to do with my professional life. And so that's why I was at the radio station in high school. That's why in college, I was a part of organizations and leadership things. And that's why I moved to Atlanta and got a job at Turner Broadcasting. I mean, I was really focused on my career and just let my personal life kind of fall to the wayside because I was confused and, and scared of it. I, I came out at 25 to, well, actually, no. I came out to Mary Beth in, when I was in college, and she yeah. was still in high school. So she was one of the first people I ever came out to. And I was scared to death to come out to Mary Beth because she was the first test of whether or not friends would leave me. And Mary Beth didn't I, leave I me. remember so much out in front of your parents' house in the driveway. We were mm-hmm. just sitting there talking. We had, I think, been out with some friends and stuff, and I think I had maybe driven you home or something. And we were just, you know, about to say adios for the evening, and you almost almost started hyperventilating because you, you mm-hmm. needed to tell me something, and you were... I was like, "What is going on? Is she does is she sick? Does she is it? I, mean, what? Mm-hmm. I was really. Uh, and then when you told me, it was like, I mean, I mean it was a pretty game changing thing relative to because I had not had a friend right. who had ever confided that kind of personal information mm-hmm. to me before, and my heart went out to you so much because of I could just tell the pain that mm-hmm. this was causing you, the fact that you had had to bottle it up right. for so and, long, and to show people that. She, she thought something was wrong because the way I was conveying it is if it was bad news. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so the other thing, it shows the self-perception of the gay community is if you are dispelling terrible news to someone when you come out. Well, I think that your fear was just like, how, how would I react? Because we had been right. so close for so long and such very good friends. And I'm sure there was just that concern of right. how is she going to, I mean, is she not going to want to be friends anymore? Or, right, exactly. And it's, it's that kind of reaction. And especially then, I think today, if, I mean, if we had been, what, 
18 and 20 years old today and it was yeah. the same situation, it'd be maybe a very different context than, yeah. than when it was in 1990 when I, that happened. And, we'll, and, and I'll go ahead and comment on that. I think that it depends on your parents, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Because so my former partner and I, it sounds like we had a law firm together uh, because we weren't married. <laughs> uh, so it is weird. To, I call her my baby mama on the podcast yeah. because she we share a child. So calling her my ex-girlfriend just does not do her enough right, justice. Right, right. And she's not my ex-wife. So she's my baby mama. But we knew someone who she had known him since he was a baby. So he was a, a, the son of a friend of hers. And he came out at 16, but he was scared to death to come out. And she's like, he's had a gay aunt this whole time and still was concerned. Because of his parents? Yeah. Well, and, and even though his parents were liberal, but it's just interesting how it's again about self-perception. We'll talk about that in the branding part. But, you know, I think that... I didn't come out to my parents until I was 25. So I came out to Mary Beth when I was like 18, 19. And I came out to my parents at 25. And I came out to each family member one at a time to test them out. Even at 25 years old, I was still yeah. hesitant. And I came out to my brother first. And my brother's reaction was, well, tell me something I didn't already know. Right. And then my sister second. And then my mother third. And then my father was the <laughs> was the scariest thing. Yeah. Mary Beth knew my dad. Yeah. He's yeah. A, he was an intimidating figure. He was a big personality, fun guy. But six foot two, just a, in, just intimidating, right? And and, and conservative, and con, very conservative, yeah. and so very religious. And we'll, we can talk about that too, because unfortunately, I think that the church community has uh, <laughs> work to do. Perpetuated and, some, yeah. Of these not all churchgoers have perpetuated it, but unfortunately, for people who go to church, there are churches and groups and churches that have perpetuated this anti-homosexual campaign and still does. So uh, my father and I went to go get a new car for me and we stopped at a Wendy's on the way back. I'll never forget where we were. And he already had clued in by that point because I, I purposely did one at a time so that it would domino effect. My brother would tell my sister and then by the time I got to her, it's fine. Then they would have told my mom. By the time I got to her, she was fine. <laughs> so... So it's a great strategy. <laughs> so that's how I did it. And uh, so I told my father, I said, I thought you of all the people would reject me. And my father's response to me was, well, Jesus would have never done it. So why should I? Oh, gosh. If only everybody could have yeah. that perspective. Yeah. And, I know, and I thought he, to me, was the truest Christian I'd ever met. So, and after I came out to my parents and after my family was fine, then my life, it was, it went, I went from 30 to 100 miles yeah. per hour. Yeah. Uh, because when I knew I had that support system and there was proof that I was not going to be rejected, then I, you know, started, I started having serious relationships. And like I said, I built a family and, but I, realized that I didn't start really dating until my late 20s, where people get that opportunity at 14 to start and yeah. have those heartaches and have those, you know, emotional ups and downs where I didn't start doing that until I was 27 years old. Well, you're probably old. much more emotionally prepared. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe in some ways and maybe not in others, but I think that you know, in, in going into the conversation about how people market to the gay community, they have to understand the life of the person before they are of adulthood and has money and needs to be marketed to. And I think that's why a lot of people are getting it wrong because we are not, um, we're not as simplified as a lot of people put mm -hmm. us. And especially the lesbian community, because the one thing about the lesbian community, I think that, for instance, I, you can't see me, but I have 
hair that is fine and it does not look good the longer it grows, okay? And that's just by nature. But I am still self-conscious about cutting it too short because I don't want to fit the stereotype. I'm not attracted to short-haired, butchier women, even though I'm friends and love and respect them, but that's not what I'm naturally attracted to. But, you know, here at almost 50 years old, I'm still having to think about my sexuality in terms Mm -hmm. of my haircut. You know what I mean? And and there is a, I don't know, like, and and so why wouldn't I want to be known as a lesbian? Well, I am a lesbian, but that's not what defines who I am. No. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that's the concern is once I'm branded this, because being a straight person, you're not branded straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. But as a gay and lesbian, you're branded that way as if it's, again, a negative thing. And we still see evidence of that in society today. For instance, this past holiday, the whole Hallmark Channel controversy. Right. So here you have a group of people who watch Hallmark Channel for a month and a half or two months to see nothing but happy romance, right? Happy Christmas romance, going to have a happy ending. I watch Hallmark Channel because... Nothing bad's going to happen. It's not going to be over dramatic. It's just a wonderful love story. And so you have this idea that people just want to focus on love. And then this is the first year that Hallmark happened to run a commercial that celebrated a lesbian couple getting married in the commercial. And people were were protesting Hallmark. Were tur- I will never watch this channel again. They were mad at Hallmark. Hallmark pulled this commercial. And then the gay community and the people who support the gay community came out and said, you're being a hypocrite. Right. And so they said, okay, we'll put it back on. <laughs> so they were being very reactionary to it, but yeah. it just shows you still in our society, people claim to support the gay community, but they just don't want to see the gay community. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that we see images even in the past year or so that we haven't before, like I think there was a bachelor. Was there a bachelor that was, or bachelorette that was two women? I don't know. There was something. It's been a while since I've seen that show. Okay. But um, Okay, well, I just remember flipping through the channels and I saw these two really gorgeous, like supermodel looking women. And one of them was down on one knee asking the other one to marry her. And I thought, well, now that would have never happened like last year on television. Right. And then, so we're starting to see commercials to your point. What do you think? I mean, do you want to be marketed to differently? Do you want to see LGBTQ portrayed in commercials? Does it even matter? Well, I think that people have to realize that whether you're gay or straight, nobody has been raised with images of gay people on television. Nobody. Even the gay community has not been been shown this. In some of the research leading up to this podcast, there's, you know, uh, there's something called like window marketing. There's other ways to market where it's so subliminal that people mm-hmm. can't determine whether it's real or not real, whether this couple's really gay or not gay, but we're going to make the suggestion, but we're not going to commit to it. That's all the gay community's ever had. Because I'm a big fan, and you're going to laugh, but I'm a big fan of of Xena, Warrior Princess. I was in my 20s. I had come out when (laughs) Xena came out. And one of the things I love about Lucy Lawless is that she's embraced the fact that a huge gay population loved that show and a huge lesbian population loved that show because she had a strong female, and every episode had, had to do with her protecting another woman. And there were innu- so once they realized a lot of lesbians were watching, they would put innuendos in there, but they never committed to them. And since that time, the actresses have come out and have supported the gay community and love the fact that they love their lesbian fans and have no problem with that. And 
that is such an isolated incident because then you have, I forgot what the show was. Um, it was a cop show where it was the same thing. And it was after that where the two women, it was two women and one was a cop and one was a doctor. And they came out and to confirm that they were not lesbians, that that was not what this show was about. So they were uncomfortable with the fact they were getting a lesbian following. Hmm. But regardless, in both situations, all that the lesbians, and I've called this in speeches before, the scraps from the straight table, that that you're giving us something just to try to satisfy us, but you're not going to feed us the full meal. Uh And it's a pandering. And to me, it's insulting. To me, it's, it's, you know, because... being lukewarm, we learn this even from, if you're a Christian, even in Christianity, being lukewarm is not the ideal situation. And especially in branding, I, being lukewarm, you you commit to your brand, you decide what you're going to do, and you lead through that. And I think when it comes to the gay community, it's all about being lukewarm. It's all about, well, let's just test. We don't want to sacrifice this person for this person. But if you if you brand that way, if you were trying to market that way, it's never going to be successful because you either have to commit to the fact, yes, we are going to support this community or we're not going to support this community. And if you sacrifice certain people who are conservative who don't want to be part of the gay gay agenda, then you lose them, but you gain more in an audience of the gay community. Like it's like any business. If, if you are gearing toward a female market, then you're not concerned about how men feel about it because that's not who you're marketing toward. Yeah. And I just think that it, when it comes to the gay community and lesbian community, companies seem to throw that out the window. Brands do need to commit. I'm trying to remember who, what brand was the commercial, the Hallmark commercial? Oh, I don't remember. See, unfortunately, I don't remember have to who, go- the, Google that. who the company was. And while she's Googling, I'm going to ask you another question. Absolutely. How many years had you been in radio in Atlanta before you were able to be forward-facing about your identity on the air? Because, I mean, when you first moved to Atlanta, you were yeah. working at Turner. Yeah. And then you transitioned into radio slowly with a job, what you were doing, like a, the morning news or yes, something, exactly. right? Is that yes. right? Okay. So I, so I moved to Atlanta straight out of UT, and I was working at Turner for about two and a half years. And then I went to morning radio in Atlanta as the news writer and then slowly became the backup for the host that when she, the female host, when she was out. So that transition from Turner to radio was about two and a half years. And then when I came out on air, that was another probably a year. So I was probably on air for a year before okay. I came out. Okay. And what was that process like? Because that had to have been a big milestone for you. Well, by the time I, I had come out to my parents already. And so I was a lot more vocal. You'll find, you'll find a, you can always tell somebody who's come out because all of a sudden they wear the rainbow, they wear the bracelets, they're telling you about the organizations. It's like, you know, it's like anybody with something, a new toy. They're so excited. They want to tell you all about it. Well, people who come out, when they first come out, they're telling, there's just, everything's about gay, 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 yeah. gay, gay, gay. And so behind the scenes, I was was that way. Now, when I, f- I had already come out to my parents, like I said, when I started that radio station, I was out to my colleagues. I just wasn't out on air. And so they were used to me talking about, you know, I was starting to date and I was, you know, there were, there were four other lesbians that worked at the radio station. I was so excited. I had, you know, five lesbian crews. That's the largest group of lesbians I've ever worked with in my life was at that radio station was five. <laughs> now, I think... I'm the only... No, I'm one of two in my current job. So I was so excited. So there was a show called Singled Out on MTV that starred McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy. And 
the radio show that I was a part of wanted to do a singled out version for radio and they were doing that. And I made a comment to them one time. I said, well, how about a gay singled out? And they said, well, are, are you volunteering? And I said, well, if it gets it on the air, yes, I am. And so that's how I came out as I was, it, it was not a successful date, but it I was, so basically singled out was I was on the air and then they would take callers and somebody won the the chance to, to go on a date with me. And that was similar to the MTV. And you got to pick. And I got to pick who it was. And uh, sidebar, the, it was a con, we went to a concert that our station promoted. So it was a concert event. And she spent most of the time with her hands over her ears because the music was too loud. Just letting you know, there wasn't a second date. So anyway, <laughs> and she called, a, and she called a radio station for this date. Anyway. You cannot make this up. No, I can't make this up. So, but that's how it came out was, it was, uh, it was easier and it's probably the same with anybody of any sexuality and any profession that when you are being of service to someone else, sometimes it's easier to make that effort to do something than it is to be service to yourself, which also is an issue we talk about on my podcast a lot. She persisted, which servicing yourself is just, should be just as important. But I think the fact that I was trying to get gay conversation on the air was the reason I had no problem coming out on the air. Well, what's interesting there, though, is that you created a point of differentiation for your personal brand in Mm -hmm. Atlanta radio. And is that part of what led you to the Burt Show? Yes. So I came out on air and it was something that I, we were a radio station that was um, called 99X and it was geared toward Generation Xers who were in their 20s at the time. And the idea was no labels because, I mean, millennials today are taking it even further than Generation Xers did. But Gen Xers were were really kind of combating the people have to fit in their own boxes. And so, you know, Gen X was really the first generation that came out to really try to support the gay community. And now millennials are like, who cares? You know, where Gen X is like, we're trying to make change and millennials are like, I don't really care that you're gay or not. So we were a station that was geared toward that and was open-minded and had that idea of no labels. And so because I came out on air and I was the only out lesbian, I was the only out gay person in Atlanta radio at the time. And I wasn't even a principal figure on that show, but I became a popular figure on that show because of that. So when people ask me, well, what's your career been like being out? I'm like, being gay has has made my career better than it would have been if I was straight. You got a following. Absolutely. I got a following right away. And to Mary Beth's point, the show that I was on that was the most successful is called The Burt Show, which is still on and it's syndicated across the country. And I was a principal member of that show and became a very popular member of that show because of my sexuality and because of, you know, my charming personalities. No, I'm just kidding. But yes, my sexuality was really what introduced people to me. And then they decided if they wanted to stay or not after listening to me talk. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, tell us a little bit of a sidebar about Mm -hmm. your organ donation journey too, because that's been a huge part of your story as well from an advocacy perspective. Yeah. Well, I was diagnosed at 27 with kidney failure. And the way that happened is I was not feeling great, thinking I was getting the flu. And I had just, I was about to enter insurance in that radio station. So the 99X, the Gen X or station. And I had not yet gotten on their insurance plan. So I went to a doc in the box, no offense to doctors, but that, you know, you know what I'm talking about in a shopping center where you could walk in. Now, nowadays you can go into in most pharmacies and do this, but back mm-hmm. then it was like you had to do a doc in the box. And so I went in, said I wasn't feeling too well, took my blood pressure. It was one, oh no, it was 210 over 140. 
which oh is God. incredibly high. And then I had protein in my urine, which at the time I didn't know what they were talking about. And so they asked me if I smoked. Unfortunately, at the time I did, they said, well, how about you throw the cigarettes out? You will give you a blood pressure pill. Come back tomorrow and let's see if that alleviates it at all. So I threw the cigarettes the cigarettes out that uh, my window literally, uh, physically that day and never, never smoked again. Then I came back the next day, same readings. So what I didn't realize, I didn't know what the kidneys did. I thought, you know, you pee, you talk about kidneys, yeah. kidney punches and boxing, but your kidneys regulate your blood pressure. And if there's protein in your urine, that is the kidney's fault where you have too much, too much that should have been digested go, passing into your urine. So he said, I think that you're having kidney problems and you need to see a specialist. So I said, well, I'm about to go on the insurance. I'll go to see a specialist when I get on the insurance. Go to see a specialist had one a had had an experience where it was very sexist. Very, he was very. Uh, it, it was just an uncomfortable session with this nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor in Atlanta. And I reported him to the American Medical Association. Really, I did. What, what? Okay, so, like for instance, like he, he 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 was doing an exam. I had the the paper shirt on, and he had me take the paper shirt off because he was going to you know just check everything, glands and everything. And then he continued to talk to me with the paper shirt off. And then he happened to say, "Oh yeah, by the way, you can put that back on." At the end of our conversation, and then he was like, "What's a you know young woman, young attractive woman like you doing in here with you know?" I, it was just really Harassment. odd. It was yes, it was just really uncomfortable, and it was unfortunate because if if it was somebody else who didn't have as strong a personality as I did, they could have been shot away from any diagnosis. They could have just gone home and said, "Forget this. I'm not doing this again." I happened to be, because again, I was newly out, so I was gay, 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 and, and volunteering for all the gay organizations, right? So I was volunteering for a lesbian organization in town who happened to have a physician's guide to, you know, uh, gay-friendly physicians in Atlanta. And I picked it up in their lobby and happened to flip through it. There was one nephrologist in the whole thing, and it was a uh, doctor by the name of Ida Hochelarent who I called, are you taking new patients? Yes, I am. And she's the woman that saved my life. And she, she and I, uh, oddly enough, are being honored this year by the Georgia Transplant Foundation for oh, the efforts so that we cool. made. So she took me in, took care of me, allowed those kidneys to function as long as they could. Then I went on dialysis for a year, and then I had the transplant when I was 32. Chills. I'm just sitting here like, like that's a God moment if yeah, ever there were one. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's moments in your life where you realize that there was help, and that was definitely it. And, and that you needed a guide to yes. gay-friendly Because it was doctors. like, obviously, so I was still self-conscious about that, but my life needed to be saved, so I was given the push of, well, here's the person that won't make you feel odd for being gay. And the first doctor didn't make me feel odd for being gay. He made me feel odd for being a woman. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wasn't going to stay with him. And so, but they both told me, the first doctor and then her, that my kidneys were failing, that it wasn't anything that I could recover from. And so with kidneys, you either have a hereditary condition or it's a, it's a, it's an instantaneous condition. And so I didn't have a family condition of this. I had mono in high school. They assumed that the mono probably started the process, and it, and it just scary. We, who even knew right, that mono could? Yes, do I that. was. I was in uh, dialysis with someone whose strep throat 
put them in there. So strep throat can, you know, can kill your kidneys. So it, it's, you know, some people's bodies, you know, handle things better than others. And did I have a precondition, like my, were my kidneys weak to begin with when I was born? Who knows? They, there's not enough research to know exactly. And they still don't know exactly what happened. But, you know, deductively, that's the only harsh issue I had was mono. And so they assumed that that was it. And when your kidneys fail, your blood pressure goes up. High blood pressure can hurt your kidneys. So it was a violent cycle that caused my kidneys to finally fail. Wow. What a story. Well, and then you talk about, Mary Beth talks about a God moment. So I, the hardest call you'll ever make is to to ask somebody to be your donor. And I made that call one time and I made it to my brother and he tested and he was not a match. And so I... I didn't know who I was going to ask. I was on dialysis at the time, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just wait for a donor to come. Now, when somebody's on the list that you've heard, at the time I was on dialysis, it was a five-year wait. Now I think it's up to an eight- or nine-year wait because not enough people donate. No, not enough people are organ donors, and so people are waiting for an organ. I found my own, and through that conversation, my mother, through her family tree line, made a conversation to her sister, who made a conversation to her children, and her grandchild heard about what was going on, a cousin that I had not seen since I was 14 years old, who reached out to me out of the blue and said, I'd like to try. And she was a perfect match. Wow. And she and I have remained friends ever since. So it, 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 there, I've learned in life that sometimes when you there's no solution, there is going to be a path that opens up for you. And if you're strong enough to follow that path, then things are going to work out. And sometimes it's not, sometimes the path doesn't seem like something recognizable or something that even makes sense. But I think there are times that we get in our own head so much that if we just look around enough, we'll find the solution to any problem. Yeah. Well, let's pivot back to the marketing, PR, yes. and branding conversation and how the lesbian market factors into strategy, or more to the point, how the lesbian market has been almost completely overlooked, like you mm-hmm. were saying. Yeah. Brands aren't going all in. They're just skirting around it. So, you know, Mary Beth and I started this podcast, as you know, we named it Misinterpreted, mm-hmm. and with a very specific intent to address a lot of the marketing and society-based myths, stereotypes, and misunderstandings out there. Which I appreciate. Thank you guys for doing this. Well, and I've been curious. I mean, Mary Beth and I were talking about commissioning a co-branded research study. And I was like, you know, one of the things I've been really interested in knowing is like how marketers are approaching LGBTQ and mm-hmm. are agencies popping up to serve that? Mm-hmm. Does the LGBTQ LGBTQ, it's a, well, three, look, four, no. five, six population. No, it's, it, look, I even have a hard time, so don't feel bad because okay. the, the letters have been included. They've added letters the older I've gotten. Yeah, okay, <laughs> can, can I just interject one? And we'll, I promise we'll go back to your question. Okay. Yes. The Q thing. Yes, I hate it. <laughs> when we were in high school, I mean, the the term queer yeah. was a very pejorative, yeah. humiliating yeah. kind of term. And yes. I have had a personally had a hard time with that interjection into the acronym because yeah. I feel like it's a, I always perceived it as a hate term. Yes. Well, and I know that yeah. it's not within the community, well, but, but I, well, I, I mean, I guess, but well, I mean, since it's there, but I've, it's always bothered me. Well, I think it's, it's same with the black community. There's, there's certain words that they, in my understanding is that we say them because we're trying to take ownership of them. And it's words that yeah. I would never say. Yeah. Right. Uh, but you hear it in songs and you hear yeah. it in, in lyrics and poems. And and the idea 
their perspective is we're trying to take ownership from it and take away that the stigma, the, the stigma, the, right? The or yeah, the power of it. Yeah. And I think the gay community did the same thing with the Q word. Okay. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. That's why you usually say LGBT. I don't. Yeah. I, I get corrected to, to add all the letters, and I'm like, but I don't say the Q word. I don't like the Q word. I'm glad I'm not alone in this. Um, I don't like it, it either just, because it it the definition is strange. And you know, my parents would use it, but in the in the original text, like they would say, oh, well, that's like an just, odd thing. Yeah, that's a queer yeah. food. You know, like they would they used it because it meant strange. And I, I think that in one of the projects, um, you know, we all have projects that we want to do in the future, right? And one of the things I want to focus on is self-perception, because mm-hmm. I think that self-perception is a key for every human being, because we, when we come into this world, we are trying to survive by looking around us, and I, and I, I watch my son, and I realize this, that imitation is how we survive, right? But we come to a point in our lives where we realize the imitation is not authentic to who we are. And I think the sooner you come to terms with that, the better off you'll be. And I think that's why there's certain communities who stay in poverty situations. There's certain communities who stay, in the case of women, lesser than, because there's a Mm self-perception that's who we are. We have not outgrown that idea that we are not as important as men. You still believe that story. Mm-hmm. You still believe that story. And society tends to reintroduce it over and over again, and women contribute to it. And, you know, and I talk about that on my podcast, She Persisted, where we, and I've said this on the air before, we're our own worst enemy, which other women hated me saying. But I meant it in a case of you don't have to be. There doesn't have to be an enemy. We're not competing with men. We're not competing with each other. We're all human beings. And and I think to the point of the lesbian community and yeah so I don't like the Q I'm transitioning over to the lesbian community and how we're dismissed because we're women so not only are we women we're women who love women so there's no man in our scenario and when people talk about lesbians are rejecting men it's like well we're not rejecting men men were not even in the equation like I am not reject I. I'm not attracted to men. M- much to some men's chagrin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, and we could go on about how I think the porn industry has, for men, has has caused them to think. I yeah. have been invited by men, or men approached me and a girlfriend inviting us into his bedroom thinking that was okay for him to do. I've had that happen more, uh, more than one occasion in my life. You know, so there's so many things, but but as I've grown older, there's more forgiveness because people are just confused. Like the guy wasn't trying to be disrespectful. At the time, I thought he was, you know, in my 20s, there was a lot of anger toward men uh, on my part because of these assumptions. But now that I'm almost in my 50s, it's like, no, he just, he was doing what he thought he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> it's what he, his buddies told him to do. It was so messed up. You know, but, but for when, I think that it's a complex issue because I think lesbians are insecure, women are insecure, and we also are of a, and I'm, I'm generalizing, it's not, a, it's not every woman's nature, but I do think there is a big picture thought process we have. And so we feel responsible not only for ourselves, but for everybody else. And sometimes I think that causes us to slow down, causes us to not commit, causes us to not follow through with things. And so we end up catching ourselves in behind mm-hmm. where men and the men I know and the son I have for the most part, seem to be very linearly thinking. They focus on a goal. I mean, my son is in trouble at preschool. My son is in trouble at preschool <laughs> because he's focused on one thing and can't 
and it's Pac-Man, okay? I'll just say it. <laughs> it's the thing I grew up with, and he's... Subs- yeah, so his moms are Xers. Yes, so. So, yes. My son is... we. It, my, <laughs> my baby mama and I, even on the way to this podcast, uh, we're having conversations on how to handle our son and his Pac-Man obsession. <laughs> But it's because it's becoming an issue at school. He's the only, he's the troublemaker in school. He's the troublemaker in class, in preschool. Because he's, he's, but I love Pac-Man, Mama. I just love it. So anyway, but I think that the the reason that men, you know, men and women have such great strengths. And we also have our limitations. And one of the great strengths I see in men is the fact that they can push through. They can push mm-hmm. through without oh, yeah. letting yeah, yeah. other thoughts distract them. I'm generalizing, but they can. Where women mm-hmm. don't feel fulfilled, and I'm generalizing, but we don't feel fulfilled unless we take the big picture into, into consideration. We don't feel fulfilled if we just do something and then it just seems one-dimensional. Well, I don't think you're overgeneralizing because there is some research out there that says that men are more confident than women about mm-hmm. applying, applying for jobs that they're not actually qualified for, but they'll still apply anyway, where women will second-guess right. themselves and not apply. Well, here, yeah. Okay, you want me to tell you my theory on that? I'll tell you my theory yes. on that. Please I do. guess that's why I'm on the show. <laughs> my theory to share your infinite wisdom. <laughs> yeah. My theory on that is our culture has asked boys to ask girls out on a date. So these boys from as young as 12 years old are being told it doesn't matter if she says no, you got a 50/50 shot. So go in and ask her. And our girls are being told sit at the house and wait until the boy asks you out. So from 12 years old these boys are getting the education to handle rejection, to handle their own anxiety, to go out there and try, to determine what they want, to determine who they want. Is it worth it? Like they, there's a whole complex thing that we don't realize that we are teaching our boys. Wow. That's a really black and white way to look at and it. And this is an insight. I mean, they, really. They I start mean, at 12 and girls <sighs> Well, now still, they start younger than that because they're, right. they're, what is it they call? We are, we're talking. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. ca- so they've got to have the guts to actually talk, which pretty much means text right. or Snapchat. And so boys are encouraged to do that, which I don't dismiss. I think boys should be encouraged to do that. But the problem is we don't have this equivalent for girls to be encouraged to do at the same age. And so when a, to me, a job and a date are the same thing. And so a guy, even if he's not qualified, I mean... For a guy to be able to snatch a girl on a date who's out of his league is the biggest compliment a guy can give himself and the biggest bragging rights he can give to his guys. And in order to do that, a lot of times guys will uh, adapt to the situation and inflate a story or maybe lie about their resume or, you know, like it, it, it's no different. And so guys have, by the time they're 25 and 30, they've been adequately trained to be able to bullshit can I say mm-hmm. that? You uh, can say on a podcast. It. Bullshit their way to a job. I don't fault them for that. And the same token, they can ask for a salary. They can ask for these things. And I don't fault them for being able to ask for these things. What I don't like is their perception of women not being capable of doing these things, but they've been trained that women aren't capable because we have not made women capable. We have to do a better job. It's conditioning. We do. I often say my analogy to that is that 
so I grew up in the performing arts, and then in my 20s, I lived in New York, and I mm-hmm. did a lot of auditioning and got a lot of rejection. Right. And it really made me a better business person. Absolutely. Because if you can go into a room and be personally rejected, you yep. know, your voice is actually, it's not even like you walk over and you sit down to play the piano. You... It's you. Right. And so if you can take that kind of personal rejection, then you walk into a job interview or you walk into a pitch Mm -hmm. and you have no fear because you've already been rejected at your core. Right. So that kind of is similar to what you were saying about boys. It's the exact same. Yeah. It's the exact same because I think about, you know, guys will apply for a job even if they're not qualified. And if a woman is 80% qualified, she still won't apply for the job because she thinks that 20% is going to falter. And, you know, we teach women that you have to be perfect, you have to look perfect, you have to look good, you have to be this, you have to be that in order for the guy to come and get you. Yeah, you have to check all the boxes. You have to check all the boxes. And rescue yeah. you. Yes, for the Prince Charming to come into your life and make your life, you know, it's he, for a man, the key to his happiness, and again, I'm generalizing, but a key to his happiness that we've taught him is it's up to him. His happiness is up to him. What we teach girls is your happiness is up to the world. And I think that is what has really hurt us and why we're 51% of the population making 50% of the income is because we are not confident enough to, especially if it's a, if it's a room full of men trying to give you the job, a lot of times women will just shut down when they're in the presence of men. When If they're in the presence of women, they feel more comfortable. And so that's why it's so important for women who are ambitious to get those jobs of hiring, to get to have these podcasts, to do these things, because at least you're helping the women on the steps to being more confident. And to think about these things, because mm-hmm. you have to be very intentional about what you want and how you go after it. So we're going to get back now to the marketing and yes, PR and absolutely. branding. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we're gonna. Uh, this might have to be a three-part episode. Um, You're talking to a DJ. I will talk about anything. No, yes, but yeah. It, it, well, it's all relative. It's absolutely all relative. It is all relative because culture plays into very the very core of advertising and marketing. Mm-hmm. And so I did Google the Hallmark commercials, yes. and it was Zola.com, which is a, a registry for people getting married. Okay. So the commercial. Zola. Thank you, Zola. Zola. Yes. yes. So Zola had um, in the in the ad. There's one bride in a bridal gown, mm-hmm. and then there's another bride, I guess you would call it, in like an ivory pantsuit. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, that bothers me right off the bat because that implies that one person has to play the male role and yes. other person has. Thank you. I mean, why can't they both wear a beautiful gown or why can't they both wear a pantsuit if they? Well, want because to? that marketing firm didn't think we could. Yes, we could. I, I, I that bothers me too because, and I see that with friends and their ceremonies, and it makes me uncomfortable because that's not. That doesn't reflect me as a lesbian, right? Because I, it, you, and they call it butch. Fem- so the history is back in the day when, it, back in the early part of the last century, because now we're in a new century. There were both on the men's side and women's side. In order to be able to go out together, one would dress like a man, one would dress like a woman, so that you could pose in public and nobody would look at you differently. I so there's gotcha. a history to that because that was the only way gay and lesbian couples could actually go out in public together and want to go and do normal things, but not to get any attention. But somehow that has trickled, trickled, trickled down to us where we don't have to do that anymore. But there are definitely some women, and it's always, it's especially in the lesbian community, because when you have images of male gay weddings, you never see one of them in a dress. It's always two men in tuxes. It's always two men in traditional male attire. But for some reason, every time you see a lesbian portrayed 
in in a situation of a wedding, it's it's a tux and a dress, and it drives me nuts. So let's talk about brands and let's talk about media outlets. So mm-hmm. Hallmark pulled the commercial, yeah. and then they put it back on. Correct. So I think they should have had a plan to anticipate yes. that, that was going to happen. Absolutely. And they should have taken a stand to begin with instead of being wishy-washy and pulling it and then putting it back on. And I think the brands need to address that up front. Yeah. If this spot gets to be controversial, are you going to pull my spot? Right. I guess what I'm getting at is how do you feel about, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about brands taking a stand to say, we're going to make this a part of who we are as a brand. We are going to be inclusive Mm -hmm. and we're going to show more diversity Mm -hmm. in the people that we put into our ads and our commercials and our brand. Right. Does that make you more likely to support that brand? Absolutely. Yes. I think I think it's the way the brand does it. Let me say that. Absolute Vodka was one of the first brands to ever support the gay community. They were the first top liquor brand to go into gay bars. They made a stand from the beginning and have stuck to it. And... Uh, you know, I don't think that they lost any money because of it. So I always remember the first. I remember Absolute. And I remember at Disney, to me, they had gay days at Disney. So they have an event at their parks where they invite their gay patrons to come and feel comfortable. And they've done this since the 80s. So they didn't just do it because I didn't know that it dated chic. back. I knew it was in the 90s. Or maybe the 90s. Maybe it's the 90s. Okay, yeah. But they did it fairly early. That is early though still. Yes. And they are a family oriented company, right? So they, of all the companies, probably knew they would get a backlash and they have stuck to it to this point. So I will always support Disney because I appreciate what they did with that. Now they've had their faults of different things and, but I do, it's because of the stories earlier about how we grew up and how we felt isolated and that everybody's going to reject us. So I think that if companies, and it's, it, eventually it's not going to be the gay community anymore because eventually we'll be accepted and then it'll be somebody else who feels yep. on the outside. They Companies have to understand that the loyalty is there simply because that community is rejected by everybody else. So yes, I understand you're trying to make money off of me, but if you commit to me and stick with me, I will give you my money. I have no problem doing that. Well, to me, this is just common sense forward thinking branding mm-hmm. and it's not even forward thinking you're almost you're behind the eight ball now if you right. because and I didn't run the numbers before we came onto the podcast but economics show mm-hmm. that the LGBT community is upwardly mobile has more discretionary income more highly educated live in more urban areas and are active in their communities and decision makers and leaders. And that's a vast generalization, but that's compared to the rest of the population. So as a brand, why would you not embrace and really make a place for and make LGBT feel welcome and a part of your brand? Well, I think for, I think going, let's go back to the church issue. And this is not, I grew up in the church. I was very active in the church. And I left the church because of this issue. I, here in Knoxville, when I first came to UT, I found a church and and I went to it one morning. And I guess the pastor knew that a lot of UT students were in the audience and made a five-minute rant about how being gay will send you to hell. And I remember thinking, if I wasn't in the middle of this pew, it was this huge church, and it was I was in the middle of this huge pew— 
I thought if I if I could get out of here without being seen, I would walk out right now, but I had to sit there because I was stuck. And I didn't go back after that. Now, my son goes to an Episcopal school, and the reason we chose it is not only because of the location, but because the Episcopal church came out in support of gay the gay community right. long before anybody else did. And so I had no problem him going to an Episcopal school. They have no problem with him being there. They have no problem with his parents, and the other parents have no problem with his parents. So... You know, I have to now extend the comfort and the protection to my son of me and his other mother. And so the church back in the 90s when they, uh, the Republican Party started, and I'm not getting political, but just the history is the Republican Party in particular decided to have family values because they needed they needed a brand. So the Republican Party needed to change their brand and they went family values, which is respectful. But the, And it worked. But the family values was only heterosexual family values. Right. And so because the Republican Party not only did that, but also was trying to make sure that the religious community was a part of that with them, there was a, there was a huge recruitment going on. And it has stuck for decades now. And because of that initial push, and because the religious community became more political because of that, then the religious community really, and not that they haven't always been political, but it's just, it seemed like there was more of a political push against lesbians and gays than ever before. At least, and I may be wrong in that, but that's, to me, that's how it, it was, felt. It was perceived it, that yes, way. perceived that way. Yeah. And so a lot of churches decided to make that stance, and a lot of churches decided to say that, you know, being gay is going to hell. So the point being that I think for a lot of firms, because of the religious backing of conservatives, that's the reason a lot of brands don't want to deal with that, because it's not just about, I don't agree with that, I'm not going to, you know, buy your product anymore— there's a network there that a lot of people won't buy your product, not just me. And then secondly, I think for a lot of people, it makes them very uncomfortable to have the church against them and have uh, churchgoers against them. Now, I'm again, I'm generalizing because it's not everybody in the church. And I think majority of churchgoers don't have that political stance, but a great deal of outspoken ones do. And so I think that's why a lot of companies don't want to touch that. You know, what, what I find interesting on the other side of the Zona brand is Chick-fil-A. I won't eat Chick-fil-A ever again because of the stance they took. I'm not comfortable with, with companies taking political stance. I really don't. I think it's short-sighted. And, and I'll explain what I think is better for a company to do in a second. But with Chick-fil-A, you know, Mr. Kathy, who has since passed, but when he was alive, their founder, and this, is ba- this was based in Atlanta, so yeah. I was right in the middle of it, said about gays and lesbians and how he was against that and... And he made a political stance. Well, since he passed, they tried to reverse that to say, oh, we, we're not, you know, contributing money to anti-gay organizations. And, uh, and the issue was Chick-fil-A sending money to organizations that tried to pray the gay out, tried to, tried to convert you from being gay to straight, right. which is impossible. And so they, in the past year or so, tried to reverse that. And then the conservative community came out in protest, so they backed out on that. So Hallmark saying that we're going to pull the commercial and then, you know, bend it back toward liberals. Well, Chick-fil-A tried to gear toward liberals and then had to back down to conservatives. So those are two examples of opposite sides of the coin. I think that companies should not treat us any differently than they treat any 
any other brand or any other a community. customer is a customer. So if you're somebody who has an ad campaign and let's say in the city of Atlanta, so south side of Atlanta is more of an urban community, more of an African-American community. And there's a large African-American community in Atlanta. And then more north of town is more, you know, white community, Caucasian community. And then we also have an Hispanic community that is kind of northeast of the town. So if you're a company in Atlanta and you want all three of those groups to be a part of you, more than likely what you do is you, if you had a radio advertisement, well, you go to the urban station and have a certain sound. You go to the Latin station, have a certain sound, and go to the white station, have a certain sound, right? You're still the same company, but it's like this ad in particular is geared toward this market. I think for companies who start thinking that being gay is their brand if they gear toward the gay community, that's where you become insecure. That's because when you overthink it, that's when you kind of miss the mark. And I think that with Zona, that's a confusing issue with Hallmark because here we are talking about romance and I'm sure they thought, I'm not, I'm not sure if they knew they were being controversial. I don't know. If you know that you're trying to make a statement, then you have to be prepared for the backlash and you stick to your guns and you st- stay committed. If you are someone who, like I said, is trying to fracture different communities with different advertisements, just, just fracture us in a different way. That's how Absolute Vodka did it. They still geared toward the straight community, but... When it comes to certain gay advertising, they would put the rainbow flag on there. They bottle. just approached it as any kind of segmentation. Any kind of segmentation. And I think I think if you treat us like we're normal, then it will be beneficial. When you try to treat us like we're different, which is not what we want to be treated as, that's where you fall short. And let's talk a little bit about this one-size-fits-all approach within the LGBT community, too, because mm-hmm. some of the research that we had found indicated that, and, and of course, we've all seen this, that many companies, when they approach messaging, they really only gear it toward the male gay yes. community, but mm-hmm. then the lesbian community is completely left out. I mean, and those are very different messages yeah. that need to be put forward. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Think about your own marriages, okay? I'm, I'm not about, married. Uh, well, I look at Mary Beth. <laughs> if you've ever been married, if you've I ever have. dated somebody, but I'm talking to the straight community. If you look at your own marriages or relationships, and one of the biggest things that you have to overcome is the differences within that relationship. That you think differently, you do things differently. Communication is usually a major issue within a relationship, right? Well, I mean, the same with gay relationship, but definitely in. That, and then let's talk about the dating we talked about, how guy pursues woman. He has no problem having sex on the first date, where a woman is taught not to have sex on the first date, right? All right, now translate to the gay community. There is no barrier. Men are dating men, and women are dating women. So in a lesbian situation, we're not concerned about our periods. We're not concerned about weight gain. We're not concerned about how much we eat. We're not concerned about... Like, those are not conversations we have with our partners because we're both women. We understand each other. Men have... And the reason that they get the reputation of being more sexualized is because you have two men dating. So, of course, men are going... Nobody's there to say, I can't have sex on the first date. And so when two men date, I mean, they'll acknowledge the fact that for a lot of men, sex is the handshake. And then they get to know the person after the fact. That's how their relationship is. So men, so men and women are different. These relationships are different. Gays and lesbians have nothing in common except the fact that they date somebody of the same gender. That is, that is the truth. I don't have very much in common with my gay friends. But we're in coalition because we know that we are on the outside. And so LGBT, 
means that we're the people that nobody wants, so we're going to stick to it. We're like the island of the misfit toys. Right. And that's why there's so many letters. Like transgender, the transgender community has nothing in common <laughs> with the gay or lesbian communities. Talk about that. Yeah. So when I, in, in my 20s and 30s, they added the T, okay? And I met a lot of transgender people and realized that they had nowhere to go. And the gay and lesbian community took them on to say, we will take care of you. Because for some of them, they were gay or lesbian. But the fracture that happened for just a, a blip, really, in that community was when gay marriage was on the table. Because a transgender person could get married. If they were marrying somebody of the opposite sex, they could get married. So for the transgender community, marriage was not the problem. But for us, it was the problem. And so there was the first time I saw a glaring difference within that community is that we weren't on the same page. It's not that transgender didn't support us, but I'm just saying it wasn't as much of a concern for them. There were other concerns for the transgender community. There was more healthcare concerns for the transgender community. There's more bathroom rights concerns. So, I mean, this these, is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's so that, you know, those are experiences people don't even think about. But there are that much different. So LGBTQRSVPU, I mean, it, it. I'm proud of the fact that more letters can be added because our community is giving to each other. But I will say there was a comment made one time by a gay friend of mine back as the AIDS crisis was diminishing. And it was, what if the lesbians got AIDS and not the gay men? Would the gay men have come to their rescue? And the answer was no. That, that more than likely the gay men would not have come because what made the gay community really cohesive was the AIDS crisis. And lesbians came to the defense and the help of their male counterparts because lesbians are the least affected by the AIDS crisis. So, yeah. and so it was interesting to me that that was the first time I felt a difference was when a guy said that. He said, thank God. And his comment was, thank God men got it, not the women, because the women would have been left on their own. Right. And I think that reflects how men feel about women. And I will tell you that there's a lot of gay men that really have no have no lesbian friends because they don't find women to be useful in their lives. So I've seen very a lot of male chauvinist men who happen to be gay, and in a reflection of that is that they find the lesbians to be useless, basically. Women dating women, they don't understand. I, you know, that it's so interesting you say that. I've seen some of that, but I didn't mm -hmm. realize what I was seeing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that yeah. all these myths that you, you uncover on the show— fall into play. There's more than one myth in people's lives. And especially in the gay community, there's, it's, we're, we stand beside each other, but we really have nothing in common. So when it goes to branding to lesbians, you can't think of us like the gay men. We're not the gay men. We're women. You can't lump LGBT. No. Or you can't lump L together with G. Right. Or it's, yeah. It, and, it, and the bisexual community, that's a whole different issue. That's yeah. a whole different show. Because Let's just I, not talk, tackle that today. Well, because they feel isolated because yeah. they don't feel like they Fit into belong. either box. Exactly. They don't fit into either box. Exactly. Mary Beth, you had made a note here about the Atlantic publishing a story in 2016. Yeah. I'm really about intrigued. The, about the Subaru yes. brand. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I think the question was going to be couched in this, in, in terms of, you know, what companies do you think do it right when yeah. it comes to reaching the lesbian market? Mm -hmm. Because a, several years ago, there was a story in Atlantic that talked about how the Subaru brand back 20 years ago, or I guess around maybe the same time that Disney was, mm -hmm. you know, forging I think a into little that. after Disney, but okay. yes. Mm -hmm. and, and they started a cohesive marketing campaign and... 
you know, it's, I guess the observation there is uh, the reputation isn't just a stereotype, it's the result of a calculated, highly progressive ad campaign launched 20 years ago was mm -hmm. how the Atlantic w framed that, right. that that issue. So tell us about that. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts about companies that are doing it right? What are they doing right? Mm -hmm. Well, with Subaru, it's interesting. I was a part of that and didn't realize it because I, I endorse Subaru. So they came specifically to me when I was on the Burt Show to endorse their product, which meant that I got to drive the Subaru and talk about the Subaru in my ads. And at the time, I didn't realize they were doing a swath campaign, but it was very targeted. And yes, I was I was there and um, helped sell Subarus to lesbians. But I think the, what the problem I have with Subaru it, it it's hard to, to because I don't want to be branded as a lesbian. I think that's the thing is I feel more of a woman than I do a lesbian. I just happen to date women. And so to me, female essence is what I'm focused on because that's who I am and that's who I date. Um, there was one time at a radio station, uh, well, actually it was the same station I was on the Burt Show, but they got a new program director and part of his initiative was to bring us all in individually to talk about his focus for the station for the upcoming year. And I got in the in the seat and he slid a piece of paper across from me and he said, and it was basically how to talk to women. And I just remember thinking, I, and he talked to me, he was teaching me how to talk to women on the station. So I think in his mind, I'm the program director, I'm going to teach everybody how I want the vision of the station to be. But he lost sight of the fact that I was a woman and I dated women. And I thought, I, I know how to talk to women. You need to be teaching. Him. Yes. And so I think for Subaru, it's the same thing. Like, I think they found a target market and they, and they went after them. But I certainly never felt, like, I don't drive a Subaru now. And I, I appreciate what they've done, but I think that they, there wasn't a lesbian running that campaign or a woman running that campaign. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't feel like I was, am a part of the Subaru family because I think it, it went, it didn't go past the sales. I think because it wasn't authentic to it who you are. It wasn't authentic to me. And it didn't, and the way that it wasn't authentic is because like I said, it didn't go past the sale of the car. So if Subaru had continued to contribute to the lesbian community and had continued to bring support and awareness or, you know, like if a, if a company, it just depends on how far a company wants to go. I think it's better suited for a up-and-coming company who is trying to get their footing to decide, I'm going to fully commit to the gay community. I, I'm fine to be a gay brand, you know, and then I, we will be all in. I think if you're a larger company again, don't treat us any differently than you treat your other communities. I think for some car companies, there's a car company that geared toward the urban community that's completely switched their brand from being an old grandpa, white man brand to a completely, we want African-American, affluent African-Americans to drive our car, and it was successful. You know, I think it just depends on how far you want to go, but if you want to go far, you have to go past the sale of the car you or the product or the bottle or whatever. Yeah. It has to be part of the entire brand experience. It has to be. We understand where you are. And so it has to do with a lot of research. It has to do with, don't just look at the fact, and it's usually gay men that have that money that everybody wants. It's, you know, two women who are making 50% of the salary is not going to be as rich as two boys who are making... I mean, the gay men houses are the most... Opulent. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Opulent yeah. places because they are making the higher salaries and they're doing it together. And a lot of gay men, mo most gay men I know don't have children. Most lesbians I know do. So again, 
that's a reflection on who you're looking at. You have two guys who, if they didn't want to have children or be strapped down with children and they're together, they're not having children. And you have women who wanted to be mothers. Well, it doesn't matter if they're a lesbian or not. Then they, they still want to they, be a mom. They still want to be a mom. So, you know, I, I just think to be successful, I know I'm going around the bend to get to the point, but I think the point is understand your community. It's no different than any other segment of your population. And you have to divide those letters out. You can't gear toward the LGBT community. You got to gear, gear toward the L, the B, mm-hmm. the G, mm-hmm. the yeah. T. Don't, don't worry about the Q. Um, <laughs> We're going to be getting some phone calls. Yes, I, I know. Sorry. And then, yes, just just contact me. Don't blame them for that. We can have the conversation about that. But um, And I think that it, within the lesbian community, you have to go femme. Butch, if you are butch femme relationship, where one would wear a, because I know a, a couple who one of the women feels completely comfortable being in more masculine wear, and her wife is completely comfortable being feminine wear. So th- th- those authentic couples do exist. Right. But what I don't like is that they think that's all that exists because yeah, it's I, a cookie cutter yes, stereotype. I've never been a part of that long term relationship. My baby mom and I are both more feminine lesbians, and and we even when we discussed getting married because we broke up actually before marriage became legal, but when we did discuss the possibility of getting married, we actually decided that we wouldn't have a ceremony because we didn't want to deal with that, what's right and what's wrong. And we didn't want our families to have to feel awkward because- All the drama. It goes back to, we don't, we've never seen this before. And so we decided we would have put all our money in the reception and just go get married legally somewhere with a witness. And then the reception be the place where we spend the money. We didn't want to deal with it. So, and then we never got to that point, but you know, even- we were older because I'm an old mama, but we were older when we were having this discussion and we still were confused on what we were supposed to do because we didn't fit in into anything that we've ever, ever Mm -hmm. seen any advertiser do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, your point about market research is that all of, all of this really has to be informed by market research so that brands aren't making bad decisions and they are anticipating what Mm -hmm. can happen. And really do the market research, really talk, talk to these people, talk to men, talk to lesbians, like really talk to them and realize these are two different segments of the population. If you want to be a gay male brand or a lesbian brand, those are two different brands. You got to have two different strategies with those. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, on a final note, Melissa, our society has obviously come a long way, I think. I mean, just from the stories that we've been able to share today, certainly, but just having some understanding and acceptance Mm -hmm. for the community. But there's still a lot that has to be done to overcome bias and fear, confusion, I mean, all of these things. It certainly translates into marketing, but it absolutely translates into society at large. Where do you think we're going as a society on this path? I mean, we're entering into a new decade. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we'll be in 10 years? Do you think it's it's going to keep on a, you know, try to get on a, a, even a more positive path? Absolutely. Yeah. I do. I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm a evolutionist. I'm a glass half full kind of person. I, uh, when the Chick-fil-A had their customer appreciation day where people were standing outside uh, the building, lining up the streets to go get a chicken sandwich, but the day was meant for, we don't believe in homosexuality. I had already left the Burt show, but he asked me to come back on air to talk about it. And I told the listeners, and I said, I don't care about the adults, but it's the 14-year-old that's watching this. It's the 12-year-old that just realized they're gay and they're crying because they're like, this is what being gay is about. And I said, they're on the wrong side of history. If you are about exclusion, it is, there is an expiration date on that. History has proven it. It doesn't matter what community we're talking about. 
but there's always an expiration date on exclusion. Inclusion has no expiration date. So even though you have to get over the hump of people adapting to a new group being included, that awkwardness will go away. And I think when it comes to advertising, unfortunately for advertisers now on the forefront of showing the visual of the gay community, the burden is on you because it goes back to saying that none of us have ever seen that before. You go to the theater, just take account of all the movies you've ever seen. Every one of them is about a straight relationship, every single one of them. And so my growing up was not about fantasizing about the couple I saw on screen. It was fantasizing about the woman on screen and just having to, in my mind, imagination, put somebody else in the, man, in the man's place. So for the gay community, we haven't been given that. And I think the way it gets better is for us to have to show those visuals, to have to have a popular lesbian movie, to have to have a popular gay movie that's not controversial, that's not drama, that's comedy, it's funny, it's just... And we're having that on television. We see it on television all the time. And so it's getting so much better. And if you're a person who has a gay best friend, if you have a person who has a lesbian in your life that you support... That's fantastic. But at the same time, when you see these images, then you can't call the advertiser and say, I don't want my children to see it. I don't want my ch- You're introducing yeah, this to my hypocrisy. child. Hypocrisy. That's right. So, so for every one of you who has said, I don't want to expose my child to this, you've watched a soap opera in front of them. You've watched one of these romantic movies in front of them. You've watched these Hallmark movies in front of them. You have introduced your child to sexuality. You just have not introduced your child to homosexuality, which is no different. And there's and your child is going to be homosexual or heterosexual regardless of what you do because they were born that way. So you, you may have a gay child in your family that you're tr- pr- trying to protect, but in the process, you're actually hurting them by not letting them see this. And you're hurting straight people by not letting them see this either. So millennials are doing it best. Millennials are the evolution of who we are, regardless of whether we complain about them or not. They are the evolution and their children and then their children. My son, who my, you know, uh, my baby mama and I were trying to figure out how to tell Mr. Carter he had two moms as opposed to mom and dad. And He's he, probably already figured it well, out. Well, he is two years old. He was already talking. She was going through a Target aisle and he looked at the cashier and he said, I've got two mamas. And, oh, and we had not said a word to him. Mm-hmm. And he talks about other people's moms and dads mm-hmm. and his mm-hmm. mom and mom. And to him, it's just normal. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so if you just allow things to just be normal, yeah. then we wouldn't have a problem. But when you try to control society and exclude somebody, you'll always fail. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melissa. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And again, if you have a problem with the keyword, like just... just <laughs> Just Melissa talk to said me. it's okay for talk us to... Talk to me, <laughs> yes. Talk to me because we can debate whether that word's a good word or not. Well, what a fantastic conversation. You're a hoot. Thank I, you. I love you. We're going to have to have you back on. You might, I'm have happy. To be, you might have to be a regular. Oh, me having to come to Knoxville to do a hey, podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go balls. <laughs> Listeners, please be sure to follow Melissa on Twitter at Melissa Carter and be sure to download her podcast. It's fantastic. It's She Persisted. Please follow us at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR, and you can also follow me at Katie Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We'll respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.